free to also not use Twitter. That's fine. We're going to give it a moment as we uh, uh, get a couple people in here. But I may I may actually just kick us off and we'll just get into this because this is going to be a few readings. Uh, today's not going to be the only one. So uh, let me start it. As always, I want to say hello and welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us here today at the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are... Heading into uh, the Civilized Capitalist Machine 3.9. Uh, I will share on my screen and uh, the stream if you're watching there. You're free to uh, read along as well, sharing both places. Uh, this is going to take a while. We're going to go slow. We're going to answer questions and we're going to discuss a lot of things within this because the next really few recordings of this, to me, I believe, are the brunt of what they've been building up towards. Everything else has been very foundational. And uh, of course, Guattari's work uh, doesn't end here and it's aimed much more at the psychoanalytic side. But as we play within the socius and we talk about how society is organized and how production's organized, everything in the book has been building up to this. And there are callbacks to all sorts of moments from throughout this. And we are going to stop and we are going to spend time on it. Um, we kind of burned through it last time. I'm going to make sure we don't do it as fast this time. I think it's worth spending some time on everything. Unless anyone here disagrees, that's uh, going to be what we do. So with that, um, I'll go ahead and read out the uh, first paragraph here, uh, which is a decently gigantic one. Uh, and we'll make our way through it uh, through explanations afterwards. I hope all of you are well and uh, off we go. It is solely under these conditions that capital becomes the full body, the new socius, or the quasi-cause, that appropriates all the productive forces. We are no longer in the domain of the quantum or of the quantitas, but in that of the differential relation as a conjunction that defines the imminent social field particular to capitalism and confers on the abstraction as such its effectively concrete value, its tendency to concretization. The abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, but it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms. It has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms, and the quantity of the relations. The abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop like something concrete. This is the differential relation dy dx, where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, and where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. The definition of constant capital by no means excludes the possibility of a change in the value of its constituent parts. It is from the fluxion of decoded flows from their conjunction that the filiative form of capital, x plus dx, results. The differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. The fact that a mathematical appearance here replaces the old code simply signifies that one is witnessing a breakdown of the subsisting codes and territorialities for the benefit of a machine of another species, functioning in an entirely different way. 
This is no longer the cruelty of life, the terror of one life brought to bear against another life, but a post-mortem despotism. The despot become anus and vampire. Quote, Capital is dead labor, that vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. Industrial capital thus offers a new filiation, that is, a constituent part of the capitalist machine in relation to which commercial capital, and financial capital, will now take the form of a new alliance by assuming specific functions. You wanted to go back, Jack. You get to kick off the convo. Well, it's calculus all the way down, right? Uh, why don't you start with the calculus, and then let's break down each of the ideas again. We did this a little bit last week, but I think it's worth just top line going through it. I know, I just couldn't resist because no way likes calculus. <laughs> Except for Leibniz and Newton, right? Um, so, yeah. So like we were saying too, capital comes with all these different changes. And a lot of it they're tying into some of the breakdowns that we're seeing not only in code but in territoriality, right? Um, and the way that the affiliate and the alliance are actually uh, morphing. So much so that it's even a more from the, I think we kind of said last time, right? It's a more from the abstract and this sort of like, um, if we use the Holland at Squint, the way the reference is actually seemingly to that. Uh, to have this kind of double vision for us where it's no longer quantity of labor value, but it's uh, in a manner of speaking, right? The flux that, uh, the flux that, uh, the rate of flux, we might say that informs something like labor value, right? It's propensity to actually be um, changeable without relying on the market itself in a sense. Well, it's a shift so from, take, oh. it's a shift specifically that, to me, how I read through this to try to simplify it, because I don't want to spend too much time on the calculus, because I think that's less important. The the line here to me that matters is it's he says um, the DX derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital. Uh, the differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of a surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux that flux is actually the thing that is shifting into and fluxion being the variability of things if you want to say the the vibrancy um you could also say the uh, erratic or random nature of things the flux the shift the change being the thing that is now the surplus value to me that's the that's how i interpret this line is that a fair assessment jack yeah i think so and this is actually one of the interesting things right is if we're talking about this in terms of codification and that, I mean, on one hand, right, you've kind of got this tie into the vampire and the sucking, right? So there's this, like, you know, there's this very um, morbid image there, right, of kind of a, uh, a sucking of life going on and a retentiveness, perhaps. But this is also interesting, too, because on the other hand, with fluts towards something like code, so we can take that just as simply meaning all of a sudden it's no longer a surplus value of meaning itself, but the way that meaning is actually changeable, which has its benefits and its drawbacks. Yeah, and it's it's a move towards this abstract. Um, the One of the things that is in this 
uh, translation. And I, I don't know if we have any native French speakers who maybe have the original or maybe someone who has a German version. If you could tell me that whether or not they use different words in yours for flux and flow, because the everything I've read that Deleuze has written on this, and there's a good number of, of seminars he gave on this. I'll link to a few uh, that are pretty great lectures and things like that. Um, the the flow and flux are are words that he flux the the flux de revenue monter the the flow of cash revenue uh is often translated flow or flux so they're kind of uh to me they might even be the same thing ultimately and we're talking about the full abstraction itself it's not any longer the surplus value of code it's the surplus value of flow this pure abstraction almost um the the change of that and the shift over time towards this other level, I think, is what he's talking about. Uh, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I only have the, the English version as well, uh, as well but um, I guess you're exactly right here because as he writes, or, or both of them write, uh, um, that now there is this affiliative form of capital X plus DX uh, as this result um and and it it expresses uh, exactly that that there's not only there this this constant or static form of some capital that you just exchange uh some uh, fixed value uh, and there's a system besides of it and you just translated labor into capital but now you look at capital plus uh it's it's change that's what uh, dx is how capital is changing so it's uh looking at how it is developing gambling on its future if it its value rises or um is plummeting so um there is now this 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 um as you said this flux and the focus on capital that is just um bearing new capital out of itself so at one point you just lose the grip uh, and the the connection to real labor so to speak but capital is just developing this this inherent dynamic of itself and just creating new values so to speak that's why i like this 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 image of post-mortem despotism the despot become anus and vampire like it's uh shitting out the the results of of uh the former labor that what uh, was overcoded by its uh well um reign so to speak by the this regime of the despot uh, and still it is this dead despot that produces this to some extent shits out this um surplus of of uh, labor and capital and still is sucking on this and trying to get more and more out of it instead of just leaving it as the surplus but it, uh, it's all about just that about uh, sucking more and more out of it and keeping this dynamic um rolling yeah and it's and it's the fact that it's not coded like the the shift we've been talking about through the primitive and through the despotic is this very deep intentional coding of all of these elements that things are coded as such a private property things are coded as labor things are coded as this but the switch to flow and how flows work i want to read a piece from uh, one of deleuze's lectures uh, on antiadipus uh, from 1971 uh, it's an english translation i think it works lovely i'm just going to read a little bit around this 
Uh, what is it that moves over the body of a society? It is always flows, and a person is always cutting off of a flow. A person is always a point of departure for the production of a flow, a point of destination for the reception of a flow, a flow of any kind, better yet, an in interception of many flows. If a person has hair, this hair can move through many stages. The hairstyle of a young girl is not the same as that of a married woman. It is not the same as that of a widow. There is a whole hairstyle code. A person, insofar as she styles her hair, typically presents herself as an interceptor in relation to flows of hair that exceed her and exceed her case, and these flows of hair are themselves coded according to very different codes. Widow code, young girl code, married woman code, etc. This is ultimately the essential problem of coding, and of the territorialization which is always coding flows with it, as a fundamental means of operation. Marking persons, because persons are situated at the interception and the cutting off of flows, they exist at the point where flows are cut off. But now, more than marking persons, marking persons is the apparent means of operation, coding has a deeper function, that is to say a society is only afraid of one thing, the deluge. Uh, deluge, not deluge, just in case that doesn't come through clean. It is not afraid of the void. It is not afraid of death or scarcity. Over a society, over its social body, something flows. We do not know what it is. Something flows that is not coded. And something which, in relation to the society, even appears as uncodable. Something which would flow and which would carry away the society to a detoritorialization which would make the earth upon which it has set itself up dissolve. This is the crisis. It sees a flowing of a pole, of a flow that is literally a flow, the flow of workers, proletariat flow, as well as this which flows, which flows wickedly, which carries away our earth. Where are we headed? I'll, I'll link to this. I read this out because the shift we're talking about, uh, to talk through coding very particularly, again, is the change of a surplus value of code, uh, extra food, extra this, extra that, surplus value of code in the primitive and then the despotic, to now a surplus value of flow, the pure abstraction. This is the shift that he's talking about inside of this paragraph that's incredibly important. And the line about the anus and vampire is wonderful, but specifically, you can understand the sort of poetic license he takes here with capital is dead labor vampire like only lives by sucking living labor and lives the more the more labor it sucks if i were to sell tickets to listen to this shitty podcast <laughs> uh which i'd sell so fucking many like you guys are so lucky i don't do that uh i'd be so rich i get uh i do this and i i produce labor we produce stuff and through that we make 500 bucks. I then reinvest that into paying someone else to do the labor. Now, that capital has captured this dead labor, the stuff we did, that's done. But capital now is this abstract thing that now utilizes new labor to continue to produce further labor. But this, it's dead labor now living off of, you know, I, I hire Jack, I pay him so that way I can go take a nap. And suddenly I've turned this entire thing into an ongoing, uh, I'm the manager and you guys are just my proletariats. Uh, that setup is what they're talking about here. Capital is dead. It's, it's inactive labor. It's, it's just flow. 
It's this abstract thing that needs new labor to feed off of. And the more labor it sucks, the more it lives, and the more it lives, the more labor it sucks. It's a wonderful uh, way that capital now gives birth to, or as he says here, the new filiation that is a constituent part of the capitalist machine in relation to which commercial capital and financial capital will now take the form of a new alliance by assuming specific functions. So industrial capital, and because last week we were having issues, why was he using these terms? I did too much reading. I'm going to try. Industrial capital is actual labor. Like someone makes shit. And from there, it gets converted into this abstract flow of capital. And that capital's dead capital. It begins to move around. This is the filiative. Like, I made shit. I made value. Value was produced, turned into capital. This is the filiative line. Commercial and financial capital are not filiative. No one gives birth to the shit in there. The financial capital is literally just taking that dead labor and having it produce sideways more labor. There's no filiative line there. It just basically replicates. And those are the functions that commercial capital and financial capital take alongside industrial capital as the actual genesis of where labor comes from and value is produced why he has the three in there because i know we got stuck on this last time and i got fucked up and i said some stupid shit so i'm hoping to correct that this time around did that help at all i mean i'm open yeah it, it definitely uh, did help but i guess um uh, it's a question now how um this new filiation is created and i guess they will get more into this how industrial capital offers this new affiliation and maybe what promises lies uh, are lying within it. Well, it's the, they kind of outline it here. They will be getting into it a lot, but very specifically here, they're talking about the shift from industrial production under say the despotic, where the transformation of surplus labor is moved directly into the, the despot or the town or other elements like that. This, this element, the shift is now that the transformation of surplus value of code, which is what we had before, now becomes a surplus value of flow. And that abstraction is the thing that we're going to be getting into that capital does, if that makes sense. So yeah, they're going to be answering that, but that's specifically industrial capital being the birth, the filiative, the, the lineage, if you will, of actual value, production, productive power, labor, you know, the, uh, how to put it. Uh, desire desire like desire that's the the molar form effectively linear linearly through the filiative of desire to me um and the others are not commercial and financial capital or alliances they don't they aren't they don't birth new labor they don't birth new production they uh are sit alongside it we'll get to that that's kind of where we start jumping now uh, any questions on this paragraph at all I kind of said a lot of long rambles, I know. Um, and I'm posting uh, links for the two seminars that I think go very nicely over how flows function, uh, posting them in the chat. Uh, worth reading at some point. They're wonderful, actually. They really help me understand what he's talking about here. Before oh, you do, please. I'm, I'm a, I'd like to focus just before we move on on the abstract part, because I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, um, how we're understanding it because right we're going from soci of coding and then over coding to now 
one where we're no longer dealing with a surplus value of code, but a surplus value of flux. A flow. Flux. I, yes, I'm going to say that I'm going to be a dick about this. My money is that that's supposed to be flow. I'm not mm. Uh, yeah, because flux is uh, implicitly uh, talking about um, exchange rates um, as well. So it's not like a flow in moving through something and giving it uh, a specific. I know. Um, okay. And, and, and the pieces I've been able to find, I wish someone was French here who had originals. I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to annoy Roger. I, I went through a couple and I'm granted, I'm not a French reader. But everything I'm seeing one for one where it says flow, in the original writing, he says flux. In his seminars that I linked, uh, in the original French, uh, they utilize, he uses flux instead of flows. Uh, and there's, there's different words for these things in French, and he particularly chooses flux. And I don't know why one gets translated one way and one gets translated another. There's no notes in, the, in anywhere that I've seen that explain that. So it's a thing to put a pin in, but his, his, the way he talks about flows in uh, the one I linked to, the first one, is specifically about that they are, flows are exchanges. They're flowing through people, yes, but people are a destination for the reception of a flow, a flow of any kind, and an interception of many. That implies they're essentially some level exchanges. They don't just flow through people randomly, that there is transformation that they're a part of. They cut off, they exist, they they shift. Uh, but in the original, all this, this entire translation where it says flows, in the original, he says flux, like a bunch, a shit ton, actually. And flux isn't in this one, in the translation. So it's a translator thing I have no answer on. Regardless, sorry, Jack, I don't mean to diverge, but... There's a, that's annoying me a lot. Right. And, and the reason I bring it up is because with, if we take it as it is, right, with FLUTs, what they seem to be suggesting is more of this rate of change. Or if we take it back to that paragraph, right, we're seeing how um, we're moving from codification and then over codification, right, where in the first place, the socius is extracting, um, or I should say producing is producing a surplus value of codification, right? And then we have our theater of cruelty. In the second place, we have the associates producing a surplus value of coding related to overcoding. And we have our theater of terror, right? Where reflection and the abstract actually come into play. We're writing and, and reading, excuse me, writing and speaking start to uh, produce this kind of interesting relationship to abstraction, right? This is where Holland's kind of doing that signified thing. You're kind of going to, if, if you stick with like classics and odds, right, you're going to like the mental there. Um, but there's something more going on here um, as I read it, because where they write, uh, right, so we are no longer in the domain of the quantum or the quantas. So we're talking about just the despotic there. And I, I think of it almost as like a basic market thing. Uh, they continue, but in that of the differential relation as conjunction, so we're talking about first synthesis, that defines the imminent social field particular to capitalism and confers on the abstraction. As such, it's effectively concrete value, its tendency to concretization. And I think that's really critical because we'll say what they're suggesting there is the way that the, the, way that the first synthesis is interacting with the socius, right? 
is producing the abstraction and a tendency to concretization. So we're seeing how right, capital, uh, capital associates is actually breaking down, uh, deterritorializing, de decoding, if you like, um, flows that are already there and how this changeability in that propensity is being is what is being produced and um, actually I don't want to say abstracted because that's it's not my style here um, is actually being um, appropriated as the new surplus value right we're going toward like an actual breaking down of things to produce a surplus value in in terms of a, a changeability right this kind of rate that he's laying out here and that's really important too because it's also leading to the abstract and this concretization. Um, the last sentence I want to hit um, before I yield. The, uh, so they continue. The abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, but it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms. It has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms, and the quantity of the relations. The abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop, quote, like something concrete. And so as I read this, right, it's not even just, um, I'm not even sure it's simple exchange relations and like that, but simple classical view. It sounds to me like what they're really, uh, what they're really um, isolating here is that with this, um, with the production of the surplus value, right, uh, of flux with the way that the syntheses are now interacting with capital associates, with the way that the abstract is tending toward concretization and that, and this kind of um, breakdown of, uh, in this vampire-esque view, right? It sounds like what they're getting at here is that, uh, and this is what I mean about like that referring the Hall-esque view, you're seeing how the abstract here is not only tending toward concretization, but the relationships that were once at least in the abstract right they're taking on a certain independence so this is to me even more than just like um financialization right that's just i don't think that's going to cut it here because um i think anything you're interacting with in this kind of um this kind of imminent plane the socios the the way that it has its connections the way that it has its um recordability and the way that it will eventually have its ability to uh consummate and be consumptive yeah is going to be in this kind of referent stage where it's, it's, and this is why I say it's almost like a double vision, where the abstract in its propensity to change, right, this power to produce the surplus value of flux, is actually almost creating this kind of second mobile that is, um, I don't want to say coming into view, but sort of materializing here. I'm going through the French version of this, and the words are significantly different in this part, and that's going to bother the shit out of me. I need to find someone who speaks French to talk through this. I'm going to annoy Roger. Let's ping Roger in here. Yell at him a little bit. Um, but we can continue. I don't think it's necessary for us to spend the time. Oh, rocket test. Excellent. Um, so to mention just a couple bits, the line, for example, uh, where it says the this is the flux uh, is from the fluxion of decoded flows from their conjunction um, as a thing. Uh, the line is actually flux of flux. <laughs> they don't use flow at all. It's a very specific use. They continually use flux in this instead of flow. Like flow is not a word that's in here. So 
this sentence very specifically is very different. Uh, this is the sentence, uh, it is from the fluxion of decoded flows from their conjunction that the filiative form of capital X plus DX results. Uh, the fluxion de flux decodes, I mean, it's, flows has a very specific meaning versus flux in English. Like it's a very particular use um, with flows being that of the flows of water. Flux is one that is about variable exchange or change effectively as a core nature. Those are two very different things um, and uh, very curious. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll spend some time on this maybe after the reading. Um, I think it's worth thinking through and yeah, it's only flux. It's flow is how they translate it a lot, uh, rocket test. And it's, it's translated a lot in this very book. And it's, we run into this with logic of sense where it's a significant shift, even if it's a very minor, um, change, uh, it's a significant shift in meaning, but flow is not even used in this, uh, sec section, by the way, in the French version. Um, they're all, it's flux over and over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, interesting. But I guess we should go on. So we Yeah, we're going to continue. Sorry, I rabbit hole a little bit sometimes. Well, let's continue to the next uh, paragraph. Uh, the celebrated problem of the tendency to a falling rate of profit, that is, of surplus value in relation to total capital, can be understood only from the viewpoint of capitalism's entire field of eminence, and by taking into account the conditions under which a surplus value of code is transformed into a surplus value of flux. First of all, it appears that, in keeping with Balabar's remarks, this tendency to a falling rate of profit has no end, but reproduces itself while reproducing the factors that counteract it. But why does it have no end? Doubtless for the same reasons that provoke the laughter of the capitalists and their economists when they ascertain that surplus value cannot be determined mathematically. Yet, they have little cause to rejoice. They'd be better off concluding in favor of the very thing they are bent on hiding, that it is not the same money that goes into the pocket of the wage earner and is entered on the balance sheet of the commercial enterprise. In the one case, there are impotent money signs of exchange value, a flow of means of payment relative to consumer good and use values, and a one-to-one -one relation between money and an imposed range of products which I have the right to, which are my due, so they're mine. In the other case, signs of the cap power of capital, flows of financing, a system of differential quotients of production that bear witness to a prospective force to a long-term evaluation, not realizable hic in nunc, that's terrible pronunciation, and functioning as an axiomatic of abstract quantities. In one case, money represents a potential break deduction and a flow of consumption. In another case, it represents a break detachment and a rearticulation of economic chains directed towards the adaptation of flows of production to the disjunctions of capital. The extreme importance in the capitalist system of the dualism that exists in banking has been demonstrated. The dualism between the formation of means of payment and the structure of financing, between the management of money and the financing of capitalist accumulation, between exchange money and credit money. The fact that banks participate in both, that they are situated at the pivotal point between financing and payment, merely shows the multiple interactions of these two operations. 
thus in-credit money, which comprises all the commercial and bank credits. Purely commercial credit has its roots in simple circulation, where money develops as means of payment, bills of exchange falling due on a fixed date, which constitute a monetary form of finite debt. Inversely, bank credit affects a demonetization or dematerialization of money and is based on the circulation of drafts instead of the circulation of money. This credit money traverses a particular circuit where it assumes, then loses its value as an instrument of exchange, and where the conditions of flux imply conditions of reflux, giving to the infinite debt its capitalist form. But the state as a regulator ensures a principle of convertibility of this credit money, either directly by taking it to gold or indirectly through a mode of centralization that comprises a guarantor of the credit, a uniform interest rate, a unity of capital markets, etc. Uh, does anyone need us to explain the tendency of the falling rate of profit as he opens it here? Sort of early Marx, general economic theory, happy to dive into it if anyone has a thing. Uh, so, uh, cool, we, we, can, we can dive in real quick. The, the reality is businesses naturally make less profit over time. Uh, it's a surplus value in relation to capital. It's the nature of all of these things that happen. It's, it's, let's say that we have empirical evidence this is a thing. I can say that it's pretty confident that over time, profits tend to fall. Uh, very specifically, how we rate that is, as he says here, the surplus value that is produced in relation to total capital, it drops. Uh, the, the, the reasons for that, there is a lot of reasons people say that uh, happens, and it's difficult to say that anyone is correct uh, as a thing. His argument here is, here is why this happens. It is because, first of all, it appears that this tendency to a falling rate of profit has no end, but reproduces itself while reproducing the factors that counteract it. We'll get into that. But why does it have no end? Well, doubtless for the same reasons that provoke the laughter of the capitalists, when they ascertain that surplus value cannot be determined mathematically. Uh, they laugh at that, but they should be embracing it, he says here. One of the reasons this happens is because the capital that goes in the till, let's say I run a Jamba Juice, someone gives me five bucks for the Jamba, I give them change, the money that goes in the till gets deposited in the bank, and then out the other side, the commercial enterprise, the way that they invest or get invested in or how it moves, that as a thing is not the same money. This is we, we, we say it's a dollar goes in, dollar comes out. Uh, Apple has X amount of profits. They've invested X amount of dollars here. Uh, this is how the money has flowed. And we've made the mistake to say that the dollar that I pay for my iPhone is the dollar they're using to fund games for Apple Play, for example, Apple Arcade. Uh, it's not the same dollar. And when they actually deal with investments, when they make these large things and they play with their balance sheets, they're playing with a very different place. Uh, and that's kind of actually the core argument of this paragraph. Is that fair, Jack? <laughs> that's how I'm reading. Yeah, I mean, the, the balance sheet, I mean, I don't have to tell you about balance sheet manipulation, right? We get that every few years. Um, but I just, just to focus on the falling rate of profit, right? So it's not just that they're making less profit, yeah, that the, the quantity itself is changing. But if we, if we walk this in here a little bit deeper, Right, so the rate of profit is changing. So if we have a 10%, and 
I'm going to drag you through a little bit of marginalist economics because it's part of the American dream that Deleuze and Guattari keep reminding us about, right? It's part of the frontier. If you're going from a 5% yearly, we'll just keep it simple, 5% yearly rate of profit to a 3%, not only are you making less profit, but your rate of profit is decreasing. And as you, you start to work with those in something like a differential relation, right? Where on the one hand, you've got this, this rate of profit actually changing because now it's not even simply that you're going from 555 to 333, but that there's in between, in relation to all those terms, there's a way that that is actually changing itself, which is where we start to get this dy, d of x thing, right? That actual rate um, of profitability, the rate for the margin itself is, is changing. And in this case, it's lowering, right? Um, oh, I remember now. I was going to tie that into the point about like, the deterritorialization uh, de and decoding. I'm just going to spit it out, right? So if, if you have this rate of profit falling, right, and just like you're saying with the balance sheet, which is one place you can look for where um, the, the abstract is kind of tending toward concretization, right? Um, where the balance sheet, yes, it's abstract, but there's a way in which you know, there's, it's not simply just the abstract, right? There is a, a way that that's moving toward the concrete, like they're pointing out. <clears throat> so with that, right, if you have this rate of profitability changing on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you've got all the things bound up in that relation. Since to get a margin, you need more, more variables in that, right? All the things in the balance sheet are simply all the things that go into your profitability. Those relationships are now changing, right? So on one hand, you've got a whole scatter shot that pilots like a Rorschach test for a Jackson Pollock painting. But more deeply than that, right, this is, I think, what they're getting at with this surplus value of flux, that even with this falling rate of profit, it's a nice way of seeing that um, all the things bound up simply for a firm or an industry, since it's more economical uh, than it is simply financial, that all the things bound up in those assemblages are themselves actually going through all these deterritorializations and decodings, right? This kind of vampire image, those themselves are actually going through this kind of sucking. And it's the very specific moment that they're talking about. And I really like how they break, how they break it down in terms of like the step processes where it says uh, we have a, on the one side, we have our labor on the other, the labor produced backed money, uh, which I have the right to. Uh, I buy a phone, I buy a watch, I buy a computer. Uh, in the other case, the capital flows. And then they say, in one case, money represents a potential break deduction in a flow of consumption. It's very important. The other case, it represents a break detachment and a rearticulation of economic chains directed to the adaptation of flows of productions to the disjunctions of capital. The basically high level abstractions that end up doing as the quasi quasi capital sort of demand. Uh, it's a really interesting line that they're drawing. And we went the last time we read all through this, this was the, one of the things that I think spoke to me powerfully. Um, but I think is also deeply interesting when we start talking about, you know, economic systems and how they play or how, uh, there's the the general critique of capital and people get upset when we want to redistribute money because they think money they think it's all the same money. 
and this this separates it out uh, in the same way that we may have uh uh you know desire that takes different shapes uh, the flux of of the economic system shifts drastically and this again i think goes back to the previous uh conversation about the the shift from uh the coded surplus uh to something that is more mathematical whereas the coded surplus under the despot we might be able to say yes there's an extra seven thousand pounds of grain something like that it's like cool that's the excess we didn't eat that this year no one took that we no one did anything with it with this how do we say what the excess labor value is if get into an argument with a libertarian about Marx's theory of labor and their first thing is they'll say is well what's the what's the value of labor no one's ever figured that out and they laugh about it like literally this happens on reddit all the time what Deleuze is talking about in this paragraph uh and his argument is like well that's don't laugh like that's the point that's why it's how capital works that we can't say how much labor is worth or what the excess is worth it's almost impossible it, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example amazon has if you didn't know, uh, every major Amazon warehouse has what's called an Amazon destruction site, uh, where they take massive things that are either too expensive to have there. So the person selling it, let's say uh, I'm Sony and I have a whole bunch of extra PlayStations that no one ever bought. It's more expensive to ship them back to me. So I just say, cool, market for destruction. So they take it to this place and they destroy it. They destroy millions of dollars of things, every one of these different places. But is that the case? Are we losing a million dollars in the system? It's a real question because the labor produced it. Money was bought. Are we losing millions of dollars or actually are we gaining money, which is actually the way it's working, which is fucking wild to think about. Uh, money's being made by destroying it, which is breaks my brain, whatever. I'm not smart enough to do that. But that's how they talk about it. Like we're talking about two very different types of money and how they function. If you haven't watched the documentary on the destructive Amazon shit, it's wild. It's really wild. It, it's the same for, um, now, now I'm lacking the words, uh, companies who produce uh, shirts, uh, trousers, etc. cetera, uh, all kinds of stuff. It's just uh, shredded uh, when people uh, ship it back, uh, for example. And that's why uh, a lot of countries in Europe uh, try to uh, establish a, a fee or a tax for um, these these uh, overproductions and and uh, the the shredding and destruction of of unused or reshipped products uh, because it has some some quite some impact on resources and uh, an environmental impact as well uh, something you can uh, not as good. Um, integrate yet within the economic system so it's still in uh, external uh, externality that uh, is most of the time forgotten or just repressed by these people although they have these uh, fancy marketing campaigns that we are so eco-friendly and then stuff like that and everything is carbon neutral yeah shit it is and it's a really fascinating when you, the, the way that they continue the second half of this banks and talking about how banks function within this, that they sit at that crossroads uh, between the two. I deposit my money in the bank, but also the bank is doing a shit ton of loaning and credit. Um, the weirdly purely commercial credit has its roots in a simple circulation where money develops as means of payment. 
Inversely, bank credit affects a demonetization or dematerialization of money and is based on the circulation of drafts instead of the circulation of money, which is also true. Uh, this credit money traverses a particular circuit where it assumes, then loses its value as an instrument of exchange, where the conditions of flux imply conditions of reflux, giving to the infinite debt its capitalist form. And then ultimately you have the state on top of it regulating, ensuring there is a convertibility, at least in some way, so these two things don't spin out far away from each other. Uh, bad, bad things happen when that happens to the capitalist system. Happens every few years, don't worry, we'll see another one soon. Um, and so it's them trying to keep this, uh, these free flows, which is the financial capitalist system, tied as much as possible to these things that they have st stability in, a, a stable version of, of it. Um, that rocket test, that's probably when banks were banks as they were conceived. I think it's a safe bet. They needed to get debt back, they needed to play with debt the, as, an, as an instrument, um, and they needed to be able to have currency that people could also exchange. It's a fascinating way to sort of break down the flows of capital or the flux of capital, I, th I think. But it, it may be more consistent than you think because the losing lottery, it, so this is just a lot of what they could do. So this is Keynesianism, right? Um, th this point about the centralization of that's just the Federal Reserve, which, I mean, that's been around, well, the idea has been around since like the 1920s, am I right? Um, so on the one hand, yes, you've got the, the gold standard that they're talking about there to ensure convertibility, but they've still got, at the same time, they've got like the Federal Reserve in that where convertibility can be made possible through something like quantitative easing. Um, so it's all, it actually, I think it translates really well to then, um, maybe even in, in Ken's time to a certain degree and certainly now. Well, I agree. I think that's what they're they're speaking about for sure is the idea of the state as a regulator ensures a principle of convertibility of this credit money, keeping it attached uh, directly by tying it to gold or indirectly through centralization that comprises a guarantor of the credit, a uniform interest rate, unity of capital markets, all these things that, again, tie this deeply abstract thing. That's the role of the state, this deeply abstract flux that now exists back to these things that are uh, more material more coded, uh, more specific. See, the more material part is going to be interesting because I'm, I'm not sure there because it's, and this is more coded. Forget the material coded. No, but that, that is worth talking about, especially as we're dealing with a, con a connective synthesis that is, you know, a, a dealing with flux, right? I mean, at some level, right, I think back to finance and cash flows are what matters, right? It's not even just profitability. It's the way money is moving. Um, and at that level, as socius, right, um, yes, at one level, it is certainly money making money. But I, I think, too, we can't lose sight that it's it's the way that money as a socius is actually, or really it's capital. Uh, capital as socius is actually conditioning all of this, right? So this conditionality of, of decoding and, and recoding, right? Um, and the way that that plays into not only the financial system here, but the way that um, something like the credit and debt system, affiliative and alliant, right? So just reporting um, is actually being constructed to produce the excess, right? So if we're, if we're moving into the third synthesis, we're dealing with the excess of flux 
um, as intensities, right, as voluptus. And so yes. if we, even if we use your haircut example, the way that capital not only conditions the haircut of, say, a widow versus, um, I don't know, Anne Hathaway and uh, the devil wears Prada, right? Um, the way that those actually produce new, uh, produce new excesses uh, of that intensity of that flux, um, right? Because that's that's more than just like the, the way that capital is um, making money, right? Making money off of making money in usury. Yeah. Well, again, to to your point about how it this this exists, I, I'm always reminded of when we read this. Uh, Gabe Newell, one of the founders of Steam and Valve, uh, is worth billions of dollars. Someone asked him in an interview he was doing with the classroom. It's one of my favorite responses about this. And he said, well, so "What's it like being a billionaire?" And he said, uh, "Or what's it like having a billion dollars?" And he said, "It's kind of weird because you don't have a billion dollars. Uh, it's not like." He, he equated it with the first time he got like uh, his first hundred grand uh, or his first million. And he said, you know, I was able to go out and buy stuff. Once you have a billion dollars, you're not really sitting there with a wallet. You're more of a, a filter that money flows through and you get to choose how money moves, but you don't ever have any of it. And it was a weird way that he described it that I think flows nicely with this general description of the different types of capital that exist at that level versus the world that we live in. Uh, well, it, well, I live in, and I'm not going to assume that none of you are billionaires. If you are, pay for the server, please hire us all. Um, but uh, just a guess, um, not a lot of super wealthy people reading Deleuze in this group, I'm guessing. You need 500 bucks, 500, 350. Um, I'm going to go ahead and continue to the next paragraph now. Hence, one is correct in speaking of a profound dissimulation of the dualism of these two forms of money, payment and financing, the two aspects of banking practice. But this dissimulation does not depend on a faulty understanding so much as it expresses the capitalist field of eminence, the apparent objective movement where the lower or subordinate form is no less necessary than the other. It is necessary for money to play on both boards, and where no integration of the dominated classes could occur without the shadow of this unapplied principle of convertibility. Which is enough, however, to ensure that the desire of the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength, irrespective of any economic understanding or lack of it, the capitalist social field as a whole. Flows. Who doesn't desire flows and relationships between flows and breaks in flows, all of which capitalism was able to mobilize and break under these hitherto unknown conditions of money? Well, it is true that capitalism is industrial in its essence or mode of production. It functions only as merchant capitalism. Well, it is true that it is filiative industrial capital in its essence. It functions only through its alliance with commercial and financial capital. In a sense, it is the bank that controls the whole system and the investment of desire. One of Keynes' contributions was the reintroduction of desire into the problem of money. It is this that must be subjected to the requirements of Marxist analysis. 
That is why it is unfortunate that Marxist economists too often dwell on considerations concerning the mode of production and on the theory of money as the general equivalent as found in the first section of capital without attaching enough importance to banking practice, to financial operations, and to the specific circulation of credit money, which would be the meaning of a return to Marx, to the Marxist theory of money. Uh, Nemo comments, a more local example would be the small-time Bitcoin investor, which stands to lose or gain the entirety of their wealth rather than a portion of an investment portfolio for a venture capitalist. Um, no, sort of. Um, not how I interpret it. For me, it's the person who uses all of their money, actual money they have in the bank from their paycheck. They work for two weeks, take their paycheck, and they dump that entire paycheck into a Bitcoin. That change moves that, that money from one form to the other. Bitcoin is not itself a direct labor reactive, affiliative uh, part of industrial capital. It is financial capitalism. It is representation in that direction. So that person investing in that, well, it may have massive effect on their life. Uh, you could say the same thing for a number of rich people who got absolutely ruined in the 2008 crash. They lost billions. Uh, some committed suicide. Uh, the, the amount or whether or not someone is ruined or the percentage of their wealth is less the point. More the point is that it moves from being something that is tied directly to their production and labor, which is in the industrial capital sense, now to something in an alliant mode where it moves to investment capital, financial capitalism or market capitalism, which Bitcoin or Robinhood stocks, for example, all play within. And at that point, the capital that you have invested is deeply abstracted. We're no longer at the point where, excellent, I've got a bit of gold, I flip up a coin, I made it this last week because of my job, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, bet all of it on red, and I lose it. That's me directly losing it. The, the shift from direct capital, this is what I got, this is my affiliate of industrial capital, to financial capital is the shift. That's the step onto the other side. And anyone's capable of such a thing. It's one of the beauties of capitalism. It's a, as a, he says specifically, uh, the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength in respective of any economic understanding or lack of it. The capitalist social field as a whole flows. Who doesn't desire flows and relationships between flows and breaks in flows? The, this is the play within that abstract. It can, the, the potential is massive. The flows are massive. They're uncoded. It can be anything. Uh, you want the box or do you want the boat? I mean, a boat's a boat. A box could be anything. It could even be a boat. I'll, I'll take the box. <laughs> it just feels like what they're talking about. And the shift, this, the, the two forms of money, payment and financing, are the aspects. But the, to them, the way that they're expressing it here, this separation is not a faulty understanding of economics. Instead, it's actually... Uh, almost a pure expression of the eminent field that capitalism is. The, the, the lower or subordinate form is no less necessary than the other. Money must be on both sides in order for capitalism to function. We can't do away with wage labor. Like, we can't. People have to have money 
uh, if they don't have money, they can't buy things. And then if they can't buy things, there's not flows of things happening. We're not coding and decoding and moving money into the financial system. Uh, if we don't pay soldiers and people to build weapons and move them over to Afghanistan, we don't get the ability to transfer labor tax into uh, the financialized capital that it becomes once we move it all the way through to Blackwater and it gets reinvested by the the highest flows of people. That that's flows, the, the, the abstraction. It doesn't matter that it was guy who works in a factory or manager at Best Buy's dollar. To him, it matters. To him, it's very specific. But the flows of capital get to move into a very deeply abstracted place. And that that shift is a big deal to kind of everything we're talking about here. Does that make sense? Am I rambling now? I'm a little concerned there, though, because um, how are you working in the affiliative and the alliance there? Affiliative would be a direct sort of lineage of one giving birth to another, birth to another, whereas alliant is not birth. Uh, it is uh, sort of a lateral movement, uh, uh, abstractions, if you will. Affiliative industrial capital is affiliative because it is directly produced from labor by people. The value uh, and the capital is produced by a person, by a thing. I like, I can point to it that just like affiliative lines in the first socius or the second, uh, I, I can point to direct lines. The affiliative line for the despot, I can still point to like he is the all of our father. This is our motherland. This land. There's some level of abstraction, but it's all pointing. The affiliative line of capital is I produce it. This is my capital. I gave birth to it. I put it in a bank. That's my industrial capital. And then at that point, it gets moved and becomes commercial or financial, not through birthing. We're no longer connected to like a direct birthing process. The The connective uh, conjunctive syntheses, uh, no. Instead, we're like you said, we're in the third where we have this uh, this celibate machine, this miraculating machine that's generating this, and these are the alliant elements from that. Is how I is how I read this. Maybe I'm off. Fuck. I hope I'm not. The, the only concern I have is it sounds like you're going. Sounds like you're saying the affiliative produces the alliant, and I think they're more mutually, um, mutually collaborative, if you like, mutually. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not saying produces, but it enables the trading of an exchange. It, a Me in the primitive socius, I have as many kids as I can. That is my affiliative line. And then those kids have kids. This is my affiliative line. My alliant is the tribe I'm around because I'm able to produce those people and to produce such labor. We're able to do things. We're then able to exchange the labor for other bits my industrial capital that I produced, I exchange to a bank for safekeeping or I buy this and it becomes the next step that the exchangeist notion is sort of the other part of that, the alliant. I'm not saying it produces. I don't believe it does. Maybe it does. No, I don't think so. So what, what I'm thinking is, and I, I thought of the word, it's constitutive. They're more mutually constitutive because with labor and that, I mean, yes, on one hand, your labor power and that is when you actually do something, there is that um, that actuality in that. But at the same time, I think the labor power and the way that that relates to the uh, the industrial capital and that, 
that also sounds like high to me where you're talking about machinery and, and um, some of the more fun economic uh, stereotypes there. Um, but anyways, it sounds to me like with that, the productive um, aspect of affiliative, right, you've also got the productive aspect of the alliance, which is here being broken down into two parts through the banking system. And so, you know, on, on the one hand, you've got the labor, on the other hand, you've got the banking system. But I take them as very mutually constitutive because if they're a grid work, you can't do anything on the one without doing something to the other, right? Even if you remain at an origin point for one. Well, let's, if we go back and we talk through the earlier examples, because this is actually, I want to spend some time on this for a moment. We go back through the earlier examples. Let's talk through marriage and the primitive, because it's the, I think, cleanest way to talk through what filiative versus alliant is. Filiative is the, the children I have. That's it. I give birth to them. <laughs> I do those things. The alliant is marriage, is the exchangist uh, notion. Exchange versus birth, uh, the direct like lineage moment. Uh, marriage, the alliant is that. Uh, this allows ultimately flow of women, uh, clans, tribes, these things to sort of flow within the such things. Uh, the code and the flow are absolutely formed face to face with another. I'm reading off of something else uh, Deleuze has said. Um, uh, local groups, these little groups that machine marriages and alliances, they do not deduce them from filiations. The alliance is a strategy that responds to political givens. A local group is literally a group. Uh, perverse specialist encoding that determines for each caste what can pass through, what cannot pass through, that which must be blocked, that which can flow. Uh, you can't marry these people, you can marry those. Uh, uh, this is the, the setup, the flow of women becomes blocked, the exchangist alliant, because that's their job, is to kind of stop political bad things to happen. No, we don't want these families marrying because that's a wrong cast, wrong setup, or whatever it may be. Their job is to stop that. But the, filiate, the filiative is sort of ongoing, and it's more direct birth kinship, uh, if you will. That's how I understand those two on that. Yeah, it's declension, right? So, but that, when we say they're like uh, mutually constitutive, yeah, I mean, we're getting into what is possible for me as a father in terms of my debt and credit, right? And thereby the aligned connectivities that are possible too. So, um, and that will implicate other declensions just within looking at a family, right? This is stuff that you see not only the children you have, but with wills, right? Um, what do you, what can be left to you because of your declension as a son, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're entitled to it because, right, there is this aligned aspect. So, you know, on the one hand, there's perhaps a debt, but there's also a way that that debt can be counterbalanced, if you like. They, you know, they, they come all together and they, they, um, they're, they're so collaborative that even whether it's property or anything, right? I mean, the son's, um, the son's computer versus the daughter's uh, computer and the way that those are tied into affiliation of the parents, now getting extended into the way that um, industrial capital and we'll just say banking capital, keep it simple, 
start to actually take over from there in terms of codification. I think, so again, it's, um, to bring it back to the, this paragraph, the way money operates is uh, different at the two levels. And the big shift here, as they're continuing to talk about it, is the underlying uh, flow of, uh, we'll say, industrial capital, affiliative industrial capital in its essence. But that functions only through the alliance with commercial and financial capital. And the flows that move out of this uh, the ultimately allows us to go back and say, hey, wait, we should be talking about the modes of production. The theory of money is a general equivalent as what was found in capital, and we need to return to the Marxist theory of money, but take a step back and look at about how it actually functions inside of it, basically an almost ultra-materialist perspective on it. Let's, let's move to the next paragraph, because I think there more of the dualism of money plays in, and I think it might help us make some clarity. So let me do that real quick. Um, let us return to the dualism of money, as I said. To the two boards, the two inscriptions, the one going into the account of the wage earner, the other into the balance sheet of the enterprise. Measuring the two orders of magnitude in terms of the same analytical unit is a pure fiction, a cosmic swindle, as if one were to measure intergalactic or intra-atomic distances in meters and centimeters. There is no common measure between the value of the enterprises and that of the labor capacity of wage earners. That is why the founding tendency has no conclusion. A quotient of differentials is indeed calculable if it is a matter of the limit of variation of the production of flows from the viewpoint of a full output, but it is not calculable if it is a matter of the production flow and the labor flow on which surplus value depends. Thus. The difference is not cancelled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature. The tendency has no end. It has no exterior limit that it could reach or even approximate. The tendency's only limit is external, and it is continually going beyond it, but by displacing this limit, that is, by reconstructing it, by rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of a displacement. Thus, the continuity of the capitalist process engenders itself in this break of a break that is always displaced, in this unity of the skiz and the flow, in this respect already the field of social eminence, as revealed under the withdrawal and the transformation of the Erstat, is continually expanding, and acquires a consistency entirely its own, which shows the manner in which capitalism for its part, was able to interpret the general principle according to which things work well, only providing they break down, crises being the means imminent to the capitalist mode of production. If capitalism is the exterior limit of all societies, this is because capitalism, for its part, has no exterior limit, but only an interior limit that is capital itself and that it does not encounter but reproduces by always displacing it. Jean-Joseph Gaud rigorously analyzes the mathematical phenomenon of the curve without a tangent, and the direction it is apt to take in economy as well as linguistics. Quote, if the movement does not tend toward any limit, if the quotient of differentials is not calculable, the present no longer has any meaning. The quotient of differentials is not resolved. The differences no longer cancel one another in their relationship. No limit opposes the break, or the breaking of this break. The tendency finds no end. 
the thing in motion never quite reaches what the immediate future has in store for it, it is endlessly delayed by accidents and deviations. Such is the complex notion of a continuity within the absolute break." End quote. In the expanded imminence of the system, the limit tends to reconstitute in this displacement the thing it tended to diminish in its primitive emplacement. Um, I am going to read the footnote here. Was that from the previous? That was from the previous chapter. I missed that one. Ah, fuck, I'm going to read it anyway. The very notion of monetary mass can have a meaning only relative to the workings of a system of credit where the different kinds of money combine. Without such a system, one would have only a sum of means of payment that would have no access to the social nature of the, nature of the general equivalent and that could serve only in local private circuits. There would be no general monetary circulation, only in the centralized system can the different kinds of money become homogenous and appear as the components of an articulated whole. And with, and with regard to the objective dissimulation of the system, see page 110 and 114. Oh God, so many footnotes. Uh, yes, marks from capital, allow me. Capitalist production seeks continually to overcome these imminent barriers, but overcomes them only by means which again place these barriers in its way and on a more formidable scale. The real barrier of capitalist production is capital itself. First few sentences, again, I think are saying what we've been talking about, that it is silly and absurd that we measure the dollars that a worker makes with the dollars that uh, JP Morgan makes or Bain Capital makes, that there is no equivalency because of the sheer not only scope, but also uh, magnitude, their actual value. Um, the thing that he's going back into to go back to the calculus thing as an example, um, and I'm generally dumb when it comes to this. I'm going to try to simplify the calculus example as a thing. We're no longer talking about a linear growth in capital. If I work all week for $20 an hour, or I produce chairs for $20 a chair, there is a linear progression in how much money I'm able to produce and how much value I'm able to create in the world because I'm a person and because of material reality. Capital does not have this because it is so deeply abstracted and removed from all of these elements that instead we're no longer talking about the surplus value of a thing, which is what I produced by making a chair, but instead the surplus value of flow itself the overall value surplus of flow, which is a abstracted, like pure abstraction almost itself. We're not talking about, uh, oh, the workers worked a certain number of hours and now everyone made more money. Um, that's almost irrelevant to a lot of it. Um, the amount of money things can produce, this doesn't work that same way. Uh, platform capitalism gives us some wonderful examples of this where, Let's take uh, Amazon, which literally spent all of the money it could and lost money every single year, told its investors it was losing money every single year, uh, and did so until they basically owned retail as a thing, which they kind of do. Uh, Uber just dismantled everything by losing money. They didn't give a shit. They're, whatever they're paying their contractors or the money that they're sort of losing in every single transaction, they don't give a shit. They don't those things don't matter uh, 
not in the way that they matter to us. I couldn't operate a losing business. Uber can. Uh, this is one of the changes that happens because the reason Uber is worth as much as it's worth and the stock is worth as much as it's worth, the, the stock is still worth extraordinary amounts of money. The company has no assets to speak of. Uh, it doesn't, no matter what anyone may tell you, it really has no assets. Uh, some shitty software that kind of sort of works and a locked-in uh, user base are really its two assets. Uh, beyond that, they don't produce, doesn't make stuff. It's just doing its thing. And as such, the excitement, the value that it has produced isn't the same thing as my company being worth you know, 20 chairs every month. They're orders of magnitude beyond that, uh, billions of dollars, despite losing billions of dollars every single year. Um, it's kind of amazing, actually. Uh, but it's, uh, this is what he's talking about, that we, we measure these things. It's, it's silly that we measure these things the same way. Um, and this is true also of industrial companies. Uh, Tesla is a great example of this. Tesla doesn't make money and has never made money. Uh, it's a non-profitable company. The only reason it's profitable is because it got laws in place so that way car companies that don't make their numbers when it comes to emissions buy carbon credits from Tesla. That's it. Those companies, Ford and others, pay Tesla money, and that's why Tesla's profitable. Not through producing anything, not making anything. This is a different world that these people live in, worth billions of dollars uh, as a company. Uh, that is not the same thing as the money that we make. And this setup, the difference between these is not canceled in the relationship that constitutes it as a difference in nature. It's not how it works. The tendency's only limit is internal and it is continually going beyond it, but by displacing this limit, that is reconstituting, rediscovering it as an internal limit to be surpassed again by means of displacement. This is what capital does and it's fucking crazy. Capital, not cash or money. Fucking capital is what we're talking about. Um, if you ever say, yeah, I have enough capital, that's what we're talking about. That, that word specifically, it means a thing. Uh, the nature of capital as it's moving is continually able to figure out where its edge is and then go beyond it. Uh, this is the nature of the social eminence, as they call it here. Uh, the withdrawal and transformation of the Earth's dot is continually expanding and acquires a consistency entirely its own, which shows the manner in which capitalism, for its part, was able to interpret the general principle according to which things work well, only providing they break down. The breaks and flows of this process are necessary to the entire thing to be, to be made through, to be working. The, the breakdowns of capitalism give them a chance to continue going, to continue building, to continue to expand and find new borders for it to go. It's an amazing paragraph. Sorry, I'm going to ramble a bit. I love this shit so much. Um, where are we focusing on? Anything I just said, I think. <laughs> this paragraph. <laughs> okay. Um, and I do like to... Well, I mean, Tesla and that, these are all interesting examples you're bringing up because to your point, right, again, it's not simply profitability. It's, it's rates in that, right? Differentials. It's, um, you might even say it's margins, but it's the way that those margins themselves have immutability, that the rate of the margin itself is actually changeable. And I think that's something Keynesian economics even tries to take account for, or at least um, certainly tries to now. 
after all these years. But yeah, I mean, even with Tesla and that, right, it's, it's simply not, especially because for economics, profitability is a little bit different than finance in the same way that capital is a little bit different than something like assets. And this is why economists and finance scholars, uh, they call it, well, especially practitioners, uh, say that the other is committing like a voodoo or kind of heresy because um, they, they understand these things differently. Well, let me, let me be specific that uh, when I talk about Tesla, I'm not talking about their direct profitability from selling cars, which is industrial. I'm more talking about their valuation on the financial side, because it's to me, a lot of these companies sit at this line that banks, as he's talking about it, sort of once did. I don't know if it's only banks now because of the way that financialization of these companies has taken place. So like Tesla's worth, I want to say multiple tens of billions of dollars at this point. Uh, without having produced nearly that value. And as such, the investments made into it uh, from that side of things, the banking, the investment, the financialized side, the value is extraordinary. And if I had bought into Tesla as one of those people, I'm continually reaping more money and the growth is extraordinary. Speaking of that differential, the pure flow, that abstraction, that value abstraction, despite the reality of the like rubber meets the road, for lack of a better term, not being there. Like the, the, to me, this shows the striking two sides with the actual company of industrial capital and then the other side, which is the financialized reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like your example. Um, and that's what I mean, too, to that point. If you take it economically and we take this in, in terms of like something like cash flows, even though it's I'm showing my, my face as a more financial person um, than an economist here. Um, you, you are spot on, right? Because Tesla will not produce net income. They're always going to produce net loss, except for that one time when they did make, make a couple bucks and then that was gone the next quarter, right? Um, but yeah, to your point, if you want to take it that way in the way that industrial capital and the way that um, actual production in terms of producing cars and whatever the hell else Elon Musk is feeling that week, right? Because he's got flamethrowers and uh, rocket ships it's just it's almost absurd right like guys it's, it's like a cartoon <laughs> but it, it is still a form of economic production in that right there's still labor and capital involved in that right and that's so to your point right the way if you take that in terms of its affiliation and its potential uh with its rate of changeability right which is your variable capital tied into uh more hardline economic production versus the way that it deals with financialization. So you could take any person in that firm, right? And even with their wage versus what they produce in that, um, the way that that actual production is rendered possible and is recorded, right? And, and going to produce the surplus value of funds is going to be in the way that um, that, that aligned propensity for, uh, shall we just keep it simple, at financial finan financeability, if we like, the way capital, uh, the way money flows and that, but also things like instruments, instruments of debt, instruments of equity and that, um, or even the way that that ties into the way production can be financed um, and how that will all relate to the way that the cars and whatever else, such as the plant or anything is maintained and produced, 
that's going to produce your subjectivity ultimately, right? That's going to produce, um, like you were saying earlier, tropes of Tesla, like the company that can't make a buck, but nonetheless, the most innovative company in the 100 years, right? Or yeah, I, mean, uh, I, I always have to mention also WeWork. If anyone doesn't know WeWork, it's an extraordinary example of this. Literally produce nothing. Like zero value ever produced. Uh, it's a landlord company. They'd buy buildings and rent them. That's it. Um, and they were valued at $47 billion despite blowing through uh, $12 billion in about eight years with never making like turning a single positive dollar. I think at one point they were losing 200 grand uh, every hour of every day <laughs> um, as a company. Like it's, it's wild when you think about this because it's, it's $47 billion that it was valued at um, for literally nothing. Wild, and yet sorry, at the same sorry, Jack. Time Oh, no, you're, you're spot on, but at the same time, it does have its industrial productivity, even though it's its own business, right? It's, it's a service versus industrial production and that, but that's it. That doesn't really matter here, right? It, to your point, it's still productive because it's productive through the flows of desires and that, right? So the way that that actually works with capital associates and that, um, and we, you actually go over this in microeconomics like, uh, at a basic level. It's okay for firms to lose money on that. They just have to meet their fixed costs, right? Which is, in, in this case, is the, the numerator for our differential equation, if you like, or the potential numerator. Oh, I'm sorry, fixed cost. No, that's the, that's the denominator. Anyways. Um, but no, that, I, think, I think your point's still clear. I think your point's still clear. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just I, I always find these things fascinating because again, uh even the number I gave, they're losing two hundred thousand dollars every hour. That's not money. Like this is <laughs> like it's not, it's not, it's not how it worked. That's not how these things go. And to have discussions like that does a disservice really to both sides about really how either one works uh and misunderstands at a core level the shift the point and it's one of the things i really love this idea that the banks or now companies in general credit card companies fuck everything apple's a credit card company now for god's sake um they all do this moment of exchange where the flux of uh labor industrial capital moves in and then out the other side pops uh the financial capital and they're not the same thing. There's been a there's been a shift in in how they're produced and how they work. This this movement of displacement uh, is is the big amazing thing they want to really hammer into. Um, I'm going to continue onto the next paragraph, uh, and I think we're going to end up spending the rest of the time I'm going to assume on this because it's a lot said here. But I'm going to continue on unless anyone has questions before I move on. I should stop and. Anyone, please uh, type in the chat, uh, unmute yourself, uh, or let me know if you can't. Uh, if you have a question, now would be the time. All right, not everyone at once, Jesus. I'll continue. Now, this movement of displacement belongs essentially to the deterritorialization of capitalism. 
As Samir Amin has shown, the process of deterritorialization here goes from center to the periphery, that is, from the developed countries to the underdeveloped countries, which do not constitute a separate world, but rather an essential component of a worldwide capitalist machine. It must be added, however, that the center itself has its organized enclave of underdevelopment, its reservations and its ghettos as interior peripheries. Pierre Moussa has defined the United States as a fragment of the third world that has succeeded and has preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. It's a fucking great line, by the way. If it is true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or to its equalization asserts itself at least partially at the center, carrying the economy toward the most progressive and the most automated sectors, a veritable development of underdevelopment on the periphery ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value in the form of an increasing exploitation in the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. For it would be great error to think that exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors or archaic territorialities. On the contrary, they come from modern industries and plantations that generate an immense surplus value, to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital, but quite the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced <clears throat> just once at the dawn of capitalism, but is continually reproducing itself. Capitalism exports filiative capital. At the same time as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, the decoding of flows on the periphery develops by means of a disarticulation that ensures the ruin of traditional sectors, the development of extroverted economic circuits, a specific hypertrophy of the tertiary sector, and an extreme inequality in the different areas of productivity and in incomes. Each passage of a flux is a deterritorialization, each displaced limit a decoding. Capitalism schizophrenizes more and more on the periphery. It will be said that even so, at the center, the falling tendency retains its restricted sense, i.e. the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to total capital, a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and constant capital. Oh, a lot said there. I am just going to repeat that fucking great line from Pierre Moussa, uh, defining the United States as a fragment of the third world that has succeeded and has preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. It's a fucking great line. Really like that. Um, I'll step back, though. Please, analysis, anyone. It's going to end up being Jack, but if anyone else has uh, comments, please, now would be the time. I can dive in, too. There's a lot said here. So, deterritorialization, as we've talked about, happens with the left hand as it's re-territorialized with the right. Deterritorialization, as they've talked about and used, is an ethnological term, an archaeological term, a sociological term that plays with the idea that someone in a tribe that has never been touched or dealt with they have their territory, and as far as they're aware, that's the edges of their world. They're aware of the edges of their world. Conversely, deterritorialization is the moment when that is broken, where suddenly they know that there's now more. 
uh, uh, boats arrive and suddenly everyone knows, holy shit, there's other pieces of land. Uh, they end up having to travel and they run into another tribe. Oh shit, there's more over here. Um, we as a people uh, realize someday there's life on another planet. It, it, how far does the galaxy go? It, it, this is the territory, the literal version, but this exists in terms of representation or our understanding of the limits of ourselves and things. And the deterritorialization that capital does here as it moves, uh, I'm ha again happy to give examples. I think it's fairly uh, somewhat self-explanatory, but capital is able to completely shatter the territories that are placed in front of it and then rebuild in their place again with one hand with the other pretty much right in a row. Uh, this this shift from uh, whatever is in its way ultimately to being something that is able to be exploited by capital, uh, that is able to be exploited by the, the greater socius or the social structure, the machine of the entire thing. And the line here I really like, the reason I love this Pierre Musso line, is very often in the U.S. we, uh, well, everywhere, we privilege the U.S. as though it is the originator of this and somehow impervious to the problems of capital. That uh, we, we're imperialist, we go everywhere, and we live within gilded walls. There's some truth to that. Uh, but there's also, if you've ever been through rural Alabama, uh, parts of Michigan, parts of uh, Mississippi, the South, there's towns in Texas that have uh, surface flowing sewage, towns of like 5,000, 10,000 people. Um, yeah, well, I know you live in Michigan. I, I say that because I have family in Detroit. Um, uh, uh, it's a things here ain't all wonderful. We, we are a a third world country, just like everywhere. Everywhere is a third world country. We're a fragment of the third world that has succeeded and preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. That's an amazing phrasing because we need to not think of this as bordered as this country versus that. To some extent, there's truth there, but these things deterritorialize and reterritorialize. It's, it's the monsters out of the, out of the castle and storming the villages. We we're not worried about the castle anymore. We need to think about the greater greater area we live in and how all of it comes together. And I love this paragraph sort of for that direction. At least that's my reading of it, open to it. Jack? No, I always, I always talk about uh, the neighborhood where I grew up because it is really bizarre. So within just the, just the subdivision I live in, you have, you have, con you have like, um, I don't want to. I don't want to dog anybody. Uh, we'll say less nice condos. Um, I think. Yeah, I think you can rent. Maybe own those. You have a cooperative. You have a series of apartments. Um, you have a trailer park. You have, and then you, all in the middle of that, you have people who actually own their homes, and then you've got a middle school out of nowhere. So it's a really bizarre neighborhood. But I've always noticed when people come to like hang out with me. Uh, in that neighborhood, they're always so bizarre, man. Because you, you walk down the street and you go from people who own their homes, more middle class, to all of a sudden, there's a trailer park, apartments, and now you're in this cooperative, and then all of a sudden you're back to people who own their homes. It's, it, it's really funny, but um, to your point, too, that is part of the territorialization um, that, you, that you 
confined in, in this kind of socius, right? Um, and it is very fascinating, I think, too, as, as we walk it into this more about how the affiliative and the aligner are, are playing into this, but also what we're supposed to do with this point about um, the veritable development of underdevelopment, right? So if, if we just take it in the sense of the limits now, it's pretty interesting that um, capital as an internal limit and capitalism as that external limit, if you can begin to wrap your heads around uh, what they're saying with that, right? That there would be this internal limit that can be displaced and yet at the same time um, they're drawing this difference between capital and capitalism that I think is um, rather fascinating. But nonetheless, that the deterritorialization is moving out from the center of, uh, if, I, if I understand correctly, capital toward the periphery of capitalism. I think that image just um, in and of itself is pretty pretty interesting. And you see how it's not, like like Brooks and I are talking about, it's really not clean cut, right? I mean, it's, it, so sometimes where I'm from, it's the difference of the street corner you're standing on all within the same neighborhood. Well, Los Angeles uh, would uh, agree with you. There's areas that are, it's a different planet and it's just blocks away. The second half of this, I think, speaks to that very nicely. Um, the most progressive and automated sector is a development of underdevelopment. This idea I really love because uh, it is a very crisp answer to, I think, the very normalized American Eurocentric idea that, hey, we're moving into these areas. We're bringing jobs. Like, this is how it's talked about when we outsource to Southeast Asia or India. We bring jobs. We're, we're, we're putting money there and they're growing. And that's, I mean, oh my God. Uh, how much we're investing in these areas, but this idea of the development of underdevelopment and because of how, again, capitalism is about deterritorialization and how these things work is not necessarily that the capital is moving from us to there. No, 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 no. They say uh, opposite. It's actually there is modern industries. It's not this backwards you know, backwards state that we're throwing, you know, money, archaic territorialities. Instead, modern industry, plantations that generate an immense surplus value to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital, but the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced just once at the dawn of capitalism. The idea that, oh, we've produced the capital here and we're sending it elsewhere, which is, I mean, I went to American high schools. This is kind of how I understood the world. So fucking sue me. Um, I've grown since, but it, there is that feeling of like, Oh, we've come first. We're powerful and we've got all this money and all this stuff we can give other people. And we're going to go build all of this shit. And we're going to export outwards that we've got the money here. And it's like, no, no, we fucking, that's not how it works at all. The capital is produced there and it's produced through labor being transferred into the financialized system and then moved back. That's how value extraction happens. It's not direct labor extraction that there's this larger thing here. It exports the filiative capital, the industrial capital, member of the three. And then at the same time, as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, it's going to be the West everywhere else. The decoding of flows on the periphery develops by means of a disarticulation that ensures a ruin of traditional sectors, the development of an extroverted economic circuits, a hypertrophy of the tertiary sector and extreme inequality in different areas of productivity and in incomes. Following, at, it, empirically, we know this is true at this point. Uh, when this hit, 
the concept of outsourcing was purely really done uh like awful value extraction from minerals and things like that being brought back we can make that argument now across the board that this is the case in everything that happens um if you've ever watched a animated movie uh feel free to hear the stories about how anime studios are treated um but that value that's being extracted is labor value turned into product ultimately then into financialized it's being extracted there not exported from you know the rich people's homes out that's the big lie uh jeff bezos doesn't have a shit ton of value that he's exporting to other people he's got a bunch of vampire capital that needs labor to continue to be living that's the difference uh and it's one of the things that i personally really attached to in in their understanding of capital and their shift that it's not uh not redistributing the money would do it it's not bezos has a bunch of money that he's putting elsewhere we could use in better ways it's that capital itself is this vampire is this thing that sits and it waits for this flux the passage of flux itself is the deterritorialization and every displaced limited decoding capitalism schizophrizes more and more and more on the periphery it will be said that even so, at the center, the falling tendency retrains its restricted sense, the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to capital, a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and caustic capital. Because that's still true here. It's a wonderful paragraph breaking that down. I'm open to questions or thoughts. Sorry. I saw Nemo. I saw you were typing. I'll let it sit awkwardly. I'm good to have an awkward moment. Don't worry. If you plan on getting involved in the social environment, you will feel the lack in all those various localities, even if you stand removed. Even the country club has a chef or service workers. Yeah. Actually, it's a really great way to put it. Um, uh, for work, I spent three months in Dubai. I lived in the mall, which uh, when I was five, I thought would be the coolest thing ever. It is not. It is not. Um, Dubai is a weird nightmare land, and it is excessively wealthy where people, you'll go to a club or you'll be at a restaurant, and the person before you, they leave the check. Like I've never been anywhere in my life that does this. Um, when you get your check, you sign, you add your tip, and you leave it on the table. Normally, everywhere I've ever lived, they collect that and they remove it. In Dubai, it's very normal for them to leave it because the person tends to leave large amounts uh, they spent a fortune, they had a large group, or they left a huge tip to impress the next person. So you actually move over and sit down, and there they are. There's the, the amount of money they spent. The, the, the wealth is absurd. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent by one or two people uh, at a night out on the town at a club or two. So it's, it's insane. Right alongside the single grossest human rights abuses of workers I've seen in my entire life. Um, it genuinely changed me uh, and made me a jaded, angry human being. And I've been jaded and angry for a long time, so it's a hell of a thing for me to say that. But it was really depressing. Um, and it will stick with me as long as I live. They'd, and it's everywhere. Uh, they do their best to keep it separated. They have special entrances. Um, uh, one day I was doing construction, and I was covered in paint and stuff uh, from the thing we were building there. And uh, the security stopped me from walking through the mall. Uh, I look, I have a giant beard and I'm tall and I've 
I looked like I was a worker, possibly. They don't like those walking through the normal person place. When they saw that I was an American with my passport, they were happy to let me pass. It was really fucking wild. Um, and they are a third world country. I'm just, I'm going to steal that fucking line. They are a third fragment of the third world that has succeeded and preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. This might be my favorite fucking quote of the month. It's just such a great line. Uh, could you expand on the, um, the difference between Keynes's, uh, you know, contribution, uh, about money and the Marxist uh, theory of money? Jack, that's you. <laughs> so I was thinking about the line about the exportation affiliative capital and that. Um, but yeah, we, I can give that a shot. So they write on page 230. Um, okay. In a sense, it is the bank that controls the whole system and the investment of desire. One of Keynes's, it shouldn't be two S's. One of Keynes' contributions was the reintroduction of desire into the problem of money. It is this that must be subject to the requirements of Marxist analysis. That is why it is unfortunate that Marxist economists too often dwell on considerations concerning the mode of production and on the theory of money as the general equivalent as found in the first section of capital without attaching enough importance to banking practice to financial operations and to the specific circulation of credit money, which would be the mean of a return to Marx, to Marx's theory of money. So, I mean, in a sense, to me, it almost sounds like they're making a, a critique of Marxism almost almost on an essentialist level. So, if you like, what Ken seems to be doing here is he's talking about the introduction of desire into the problem of money. So, in that sense, we're talking about how money not only is um, implicated in flows and that, but how money is here bound up um, is actually productive. Let's real quick. Right? Uh, well, so I want to, the specific thing I think he's referring to here is, is Keynes liquidity preference theory, um, which is the idea that uh, uh, people, all things being equal, uh, investors will take a larger risk if a thing is liquid quickly or gives them liquidity faster or whatever that is, that there's a preference towards liquidity in any market, regardless if a long-term, safe, simple sort of investment exists, but you won't be liquid for two years or a more risky thing, but you're going to be liquid within six months. Uh, people are desire and their preference. They, the, the push towards that and the way Keynes talked about it uh, is very much in that vein. This was one of his big sort of theories as I understand it. I mean, it's definitely interesting, too, because this gets into something important, too, that money is in relation to people and all these um, different things, right? So, And Marx kind of has that with the value form D, which is going to be, um, I guess, real, to give a rough sketch, right? Value form D is the Marx, in, in chapter one, is basically Marx working out how do you establish um, the relationships um whereby all these different things can be um, commiserate, right? So how is it possible to relate a coat to a, t well, today it's a TV, to a tape dispenser, to um, a locket, right? And that's value form C. And then when something takes on the general equivalent, something kind of um, provides a common 
common denominator, I guess, if you like. Um, although I guess labor kind of ends up doing that too. Um, so you get value form D, which is going to be the value form of money. Whereby, um, and he's very particular. He wants to point out that we can't just uh, understand money as simply gold or conflate the, the gold of a coin with the value of a coin, right? As value form D. But I mean, this is where I think they're making the essentialist critique is it almost sounds like what Deleuze and Water is saying is that too often Marxist economists will focus on the theory of money for the essence of money. Or if they're considering the mode of production, we might say that they're a little bit too caught up. Um, I don't want to be mean there. They're a little bit too caught up on, shall we say, how production has a form as opposed to the way that production, especially with desire, is actually in the processes of producibility. Well, yeah, it's 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 going back to his idea of the the two conceptions of finance and how the behavior of them shifts. For for Marx, uh, the and again, I'm not. There's going to be someone who's going to yell at me. Please do. Um, Marx played with capital and production in the way of worker does X, X amount of money is excess. That's the excess value of labor. That's what capital then reinvests elsewhere, and it's a very linear, specific setup of the circulation of money and credit money inside of that. Um, and it's almost a, I don't want to say like a hyper-rational version of it, but it doesn't take into account the way the secondary form of money, capital, really works. And Keynes came out with the, the preference of liquidity, with this idea that uh, ultimately, uh, not not like supply side economics as a thing, but instead actually demand is not actually about the productive value of the economy, which was very much the mentality prior to him that as the economy gets bigger, people want to buy more. And he's like, no, there's actually there's a whole bunch of shit that completely breaks everything. And uh, it can be as simple as, uh, you know, a person's prefer preference for liquidity. They're willing to take larger risks all the way down to, uh, you know, the way the um Central bank changes its rates based upon political circumstances or wars happening. And Keynes talked about sort of these larger things that play into it all. And I think that if I had to say, like, is his line between like through Keynes critiquing Marx and bringing it back and saying Marx didn't go far enough. We need to talk about actually the material functioning of this money. And we can do that through a Keynesian type lens on that second level, the reintroduction of desire into this the the entire way that Keynesian sort of economic expansion is thought to work through his economic systems. There's a ton of different stuff there that I think we could probably dive into, but um, to me, like liquidity preference is probably the closest, but that feels closer, JK. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit more clear. Yes. Okay. So Marx didn't really talk about the the, uh, the the aspect of uh, investment uh, of capital, right? In his theory? He did, but it was, and again, someone's going to end up correcting me on this. Please do. Um, it wasn't this weird calculus version. Uh, let's say it was algebra. Uh, it was much more of a linear general discussion versus um, versus that there's a deeply irrational sort of uh, absurd version of this where value begets value, 
but in a weird exponential way where it's growing itself again, uh, dy dx. It's not just about the sort of separation of the excess production of capital with labor versus the standard value of capital, but it's this other level of things that there's a whole bunch of different new shit happening. And I think that's the entire, for me, that feels like the closest. Yeah. Is that making sense? Yeah. Well, so so uh, Marx probably focused more on the um, conflicting relationship between, the, um, you know, between the, you know, um, the capitalist and the, and the working class. Yeah. Well, I've got to point this out. Um, the, the meaning of a return to Marx, to the Marxist theory of money, they're, they're criticizing the Marxist economists. They're trying to say that this is actually in Marx all along, and they're, they're overlooking it, right, because they're too stuck on value form D. Oh, that actually makes more sense. Well, it may not be explicitly in Marx, but it does, it does feel, I don't know, someone who really knows Marx will be able to correct me. But I think you're right, Jack. Uh, and it's, so my favorite Marx book is uh, the notes on John Stuart Mill, or John Mill, not his son, notes, notes on John Mill, which is basically just a fragmentary thing from his notebooks. But um, one of the reasons I'm pointing this out here and because I think this is what they're getting at with Ken, since he's got what's happening to things and the way that institutions themselves actually affect money, as opposed to money just being uh, distillable, right? That there's simply these um, these these commod these relationships of commodities, whereby value form D is ultimately going to be um, taken into play, right? You can't explain too much beyond. The commodities relationships themselves with that any more than you can explain the institutions unless you understand the institutions through those value forms right which you can do but i think that's what they're criticizing because if you if you go to the text i'm talking about you can actually see marx working out how credit and debt actually changes people at an ontological level how things like moral character actually become uh, like, again, at an ontological level, how they become um, a form of credit, right? That, you, that you're, you're, whether or not you're worth lending money to is tied into your moral character in certain ways. And he has a really good point, right? Because we know this if you've ever applied from a, a loan in that, they, they, there is a way moral character is um, constituted and certainly not in the way that um, Aristotle's thinking. So Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, uh, you know, nicks uh, the uh, the uh, the workers' efforts to unionize, um, but he's able to, you know, uh, he's able to use uh, a big chunk of his uh, his you know investments uh, to um, take a ride up into into space for like a like a short uh, you know a few hours or or you know however long he was there, but that. That amount of money probably could have covered, uh, you know, all the, you know, all, all all that the union probably would have cost them. Well, and it's and it's interesting when you start playing with, uh, when you start playing with how the money sort of works and the words we use around it. One of the things that critics of Keynes uh, from the left 
um, and also Keynes, like the, the shift in terminology, when a business has excess capital, it spends it, it buys things, but that's not how they talk about it. They talk about it as investments because the capital that they've put in, they expect to return dividends in one way or another to gain value. It is an investment to gain value. They're not consuming the capital in the same way that uh, if they paid a worker, that's effectively consumptive. And uh, very specifically, um, like some of the critiques around Keynes, and I think even some of Keynes's writing even separated the two, that you had investment or expenditure of consumption. And one turns it into loses sort of DNG's terminology here. One turns it into the capital that a person utilizes, the payroll, the the consumptive element, and the other turns it into the financialized instrument. And it's kind of funny that it's the same same thing. They're spending. It's just the the way we talk about it. Again, turn it into these abstractions. We're no longer separating it out. Uh, it's one of the other things that I think. I mean, they'll get into all of this, but. If I have, let's say I have capital, let's just say it's all the same thing. If I buy a thing, I buy a candy bar, I've consumed that. That money's gone from my world. But if I'm a business who invests into a candy bar company, they're buying all of the candy bars, technically, and the machines to make them. But their assumption is that that will actually not be capital that's consumed, that that is an investment that will return, that will continue to produce, and that now it will actually beget its own money. That playthrough, that shift is one of the things they're talking about here. Um, it's a really crazy thing. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, any last questions, uh, conversations, any last things before we uh, dip out for next week when we will turn to the uh, next paragraph as uh, we move to the displacement? Uh, uh, wait, are we on the displacement? No, no, I've, I've scrolled back. Ah, the problem. Oh, Maurice Clavel. Excellent. I will, I will get those uh, uh, wonderful questions and critiques of Marcus, Marxist economists. I have that from our notes before. It's a great piece. Um, and we'll save that for next time. Uh, thank all of you very much for joining us. Uh, and please uh, uh, join us next week. Join us in chat. Join us in conversation. We're really excited to have all of you here so very much as part of this uh just love y'all to death can't tell you just so great yeah thanks brooks thank you yeah what's up man all right so uh while everyone's talking i am listening but i just could not help but dive into flux and flow and rabbit hole really bad so uh and i typed it earlier the use of flux uh so flow as we're using it or as uh, uh was defined earlier uh, I think Ken said what he what what flow is and how we're using it. Flow is water, the flow of water, the processual but fairly constant element. Water flows freely, free free flow. That's a sp very specific wording that is used is coulé. It's a c o u l e r. It's a French version of that. Uh, flux, as we're using it, which is a flow of consistent change, which is a flux. Uh, the that element is still flows but that has a very different intentionality behind it in the english version there are around 40 uses of uh flux and 690 some uses of flow 
but in the French version, there are 705 uses of flux and 31 of coulet. That feels like, to me, a problem. They have drastically different meanings. Like, significant, okay, it's nuanced different meanings, but it's a fucking big shift. Literally every time today that I've said the word flow, it has been flux in the original French. I was looking it over. The Everyone wants a flow of a flow of a flow is flux of a flux of a flux. Everything. There's no, they don't use flow at all in this entire section, by the way. See, it's tough for me because I don't have background in French for that. Um, I don't, I don't, almost don't at all either, but I do know after reading a handful of bits of where uh, they've translated these words before, because there's, there's poetry that uses these, and you can find English translations, uh, you can annoy people like that, uh, you can see Taylor's, uh, for example, he's done a whole bunch of uh, La Ruelle uh, translations, and he's very careful to make sure that flow, which is a La Ruelle term, is translated couleur very specifically, like couleur goes to flow. Um, not the other way around, which it's the other way around in this book, but not always, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they just let it be the same word, otherwise not. And it's like, that's a big deal, isn't it? Am I wrong to think that's a big deal? Um, it's interesting, especially if it's like you're saying it's opposite lines. I'm trying to work out what the implications would be because, as I understand, it looks like the the translators are using flux because they want to suggest, um, I mean, on the one hand, the decodability, but also the propensity for recodability, right? Yes. That comes into play uh, very predominantly with capital as opposed to the other socii. A thing that, a thing that exchanges, that. an exchanges thing that shifts and changes, flux. Right. Yeah, and so, and so with that, I mean, you could probably argue that all flows and fluxes kind of commingle, and then you would you would just have to simply work out a way of talking about the codified and like the decodified, and then simply what we're dealing with in terms of what do we do now that this thing is decoded and all of a sudden has the all this potentiality for recodify recodification right like um like i think of my neighborhood it, it's constantly changing here i mean there's there was a joke about one of the neighbors being archie bunker um and as more uh, black families moved in you know archie got more and more uh, talkative and then he moved out right but those are all things happening um, through desire with something like an Archie Bunker, who's ironically mentioned in Antiochus, um, interestingly enough, is, is made possible by that, that kind of subjectivity, but also um, that recognizability. Because to your point earlier, um, you've got memory in both cases, right? You've got recording happening. And so I think... I think the critical thing would be to work out of vocabulary. We're still clear on what we're talking about insofar as flows or fluxes. Because, I mean, if I say to you there's a codified flux, that doesn't necessarily um, take away from what we're talking about in terms of codification. 
but it, it does have a different kind of suggestion. It's, it's a poetic difference that doesn't have, I don't, there's probably not a material major difference in the, the use of the two, but there is in terms of the nuance and poetic nature of what they're talking about. Because to me, the difference would be that they're pointing at, we say flows, flows to me means that, uh, let's think of it as uh, magical lines of different colors that flow. They pass through me. When I say they pass through, to me, a flow remains unchanged by passing through me. Flux, that's not the same. If a if flux passes through Jack, it changes. Now, not, not significantly. It's not like it turns into a car. It's still a flux out the other side, but that it takes pieces, it changes, it shifts. It's the, let's go back like real quick. The flux of desire versus flows of desire is a significant difference at a nuance level. And by the way, they don't say flow of desire. They say flux of desire. Desire de flux or whatever the fuck the French version is of this shit. Can't say it properly. Um, I, I suppose I'd share your concern there because like when we talk about the hunter and codification, I mean, it would, I think, be a mistake to th take the hunter as simply stamped, right? That there is kind of this um, regiment there because there is a lot of room for um, different things to happen, right? Because even though you've got a hunter in affiliated capacity, the alliance makes a lot of different things possible. So I, I would appreciate your point in that in, in, in that regard because I do think it's important to understand that even with codification and the way that that ties back to your semiotic chain and that polyvocality, it is important to keep in mind that polyvocality, or if you're doing a paralogism, what's going on there with something like S1, but in, in either case, the way that that is um, not to be taken for granted either. I can agree with that. I mean, it's, it, it, it shifts a little bit of the poetry behind things for me. And I kind of, I almost prefer it as a thing because flows feel, um, flows of things feel as if I can redirect them, but not change them. Like if, a, if, if water's flowing, I can utilize, let's, let's talk about desire very particularly. If I've trapped desire flows, inside of representations and they've been subsumed underneath it ultimately with rufflement the pushing back out of such a thing they don't use cool by the way they use flux for this um the that as a thing means that the desires are almost stay pure like i don't know how to put it like water that is under pressure in a hydrogen hydroelectric dam the flows of water are being utilized to generate power and there's pressure and all kinds of stuff being stuck rufflement but the water's still water like water flows a flux as someone who solders like flux is literally about changing shape that's what flux does flux is uh from a physical conception from a name for part of soldering uh from everything flux is change as an element and 
to say that flux is trapped in rep representation, flows of flux become trapped. In my head, the poetry shifts drastically of what that means or how that can have implications around desire or representation that to me actually makes things make even more sense suddenly, where we're not talking about almost a pure flows, but instead a flux of desire that's constantly moving through things. Maybe that's just me, but it feels like that. We're in the anti-Oedipus chat. I'm going to guess no. The, ter the terrifying thing is he says no, you'll never know what the answer is. <laughs> Fair. Sorry, I do not speak French. I'm having some issue with my uh, mute button. I meant to stay on mute. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're angrily debating over a translation thing that's bothering the shit out of me. And I'm going to have, I'm going to tweet at Taylor. What the fuck? Why am I not doing that right now? Um, I, I speak French. Oh my God. Asha, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it, uh, are you going to paste the paragraph? Yeah. So I, the, the change, the, the word specifically in anti-Oedipus, I'm going to post two sentences. Um, um, and then I want to know from you who speaks both of these, the core word that we're looking at is, and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly. And I apologize. As I always do, I anglicize things. Um, C O U L E R cooler, uh, flow, the thing to flow, um, versus flux. And if you can, C O U L U R L E R. Uh, here are the two sentences. And specifically, I'll, I'll bold the words that we're comparing. Yes. Uh, couler et couper. Yes. Uh, the, the two words are, they're bolded. The first sentence, um, what is couper? I should look this up. I'm dumb. Means cut. Couper ah. means cut. What does couler mean? Um, it's like if you uh, have um, uh, uh, a cup of water and uh, you drop the water. The water flows uh, out from it, splashes, goes everywhere. Uh, yes. Would you a hose like a garden hose? Would you say water the coulee? Would you say with that? No, you don't say that word. Interesting. What word would you use by chance? Uh, for uh, what, what do you use uh, for in, in English? Uh, flow. Flow out of the hose? Yeah, water flows out of the hose. Yeah, I guess you can use coulee out of the hose also. If, okay. if you mean flow, yeah, like yeah. If, if, not, if not a pressure water, yeah, I guess you can use uh, oh. flow. I don't have a good hose. Maybe I'm 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 thinking of I'm thinking of just a simple <laughs> setup. Um, the the next sentence though, flux. I uh, mm. the, the I'm not going to even try to pronounce any of that. That second sentence. Would you? What what does flux mean in that in that sentence? What how would you describe it or use it elsewhere? Le uh, champ social capitaliste dans son ensemble des Flux, qui flux. est un désir, des flux, 
uh, et des rapports entre les flux uh, et les coupures de. Uh, I think Deleuze uh, wrote many uh, interpretations and definitions of the word flux. There's even a, like a magazine with that name. There is. It... So... I used to know the definition and I really liked it for a while. Like it was really cool. It doesn't have to do with the reflux at all. It's, it's something else. It's not reflux. Um, would you say you would translate flux there as flow? Uh, I'm not sure, but I can uh, uh, Google it later for you and like reply with uh, with the definition that I find. Yeah, it's, it's this is the debate we're having, and I'm finding that there's actually a lot of. A lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of debate on this. It's kind of funny, specifically, um, uh, with specific like people writing how they're angry about the translation, and apparently, like it's this is I find this interesting. I don't know if anyone else does. I find this stuff fascinating because Deleuze, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, but it always feels like Deleuze chooses words so specifically and poetically, as if he were writing poetry that the to understand what he's saying is to dive into it in the same way that saying body without organs without going and reading Artaud, for example uh would be a disservice and a mistake this feels like i need to do a lot of understanding into flux yeah i once got a definition for flux in class like it was a Deleuze class a very long time ago, and I remember that I really liked the definition, but I can't remember right now. Like it should, the memory should come at some point. Excellent. It, it was a really, a really nice translation, and it's not as simple as "coule." It's like probably much more advanced word. Excellent. Well, if you come across that or anything else around this, uh, I would adore. Uh, just post it up in here because uh, we've got it. Ah, I found it. I found one of the articles called Flow, where Stuart Rockefeller literally goes into what we're debating about it. I've been waiting for this. Good. This is fun. Uh, but I should uh, not do this. This is, um, there we go. I'm going to share it in there, uh, Jack and uh, Asha. Is it Asha? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I changed my name again. <laughs> Yeah, it's Asha. Oh, I don't, I'm terrible with names. I'm sorry. I don't remember. Yeah. What was your name before? Wuhai. There we go. That's, that's why I don't. <laughs> and the one I couldn't pronounce. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take Asha. Uh, welcome. Thank you. I apologize. I couldn't pronounce your name before. I'm sorry. No, no it's fine. Um, Fascinating breakdown. I, was, I found like four or five references specifically to Deleuze and to the translators, which I really think is hilarious, um, the specific wording he uses around that. Uh, but... Boop, boop. I noticed the invert... Uh, Rockefeller's invoking birdsong. I was actually pretty curious. Did you guys see a tropical storm birdsong? No. A bad joke, man. Because it's tropical storm, Bert. Henry, uh, now. Oh my God, that's that's worse than all your Star Wars jokes. That one's bad. 
I'm not, I'm going to pretend you never said this joke. It is pretty, I mean, it's pretty lame, but <laughs> it amuses me. Because it, it, it's not Henry, it's, uh, what would that be in French? Henri. Henri. Now you need that, like, throaty R, that, ugh, kind of thing no. where you're, like, gagging. What? They're, they're not German. No, the R is like, uh, I think it's like that, where it's like, I mean, I'm embarrassing myself. I, I mean, Asha's in here. We're being assholes. I love, I love I've, I've been working with uh, French is one of my favorite languages and sadly I don't get to uh, never got to use it or learn it um, anywhere you travel it's one of the uh, interesting things about being uh, someone who speaks English is whenever you travel except for France really um, everyone wants to practice their English uh, I worked with a Swedish company and I was there two three months out of the year for like two or three years I learned almost no Swedish. They would only speak English in the office when I was there, which is not for my benefit, but for theirs, um, because they wanted to be able to have meetings with outsourcers and partners in the U.S., and I was essentially a tutor. It was very strange. Uh, a couple of partners in France, it was the same, same way, um, which I was surprised by. But uh, one of my favorite-sounding languages, it and Russian. Russian sounds so great. Tutor or Chichi, the uh, the Germans I knew, they used to they like ask me to write like papers and stuff for them, and they'd always say, "Well, my English just isn't good enough." <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, Bergson's views on movement are helpful to understanding how people use the term "flow" today, particularly when they employ it as a noun. In English translations of Bergson, "flow" appears mainly as a verb, but even more often we see the noun "flux." I'm going to have to assume this is a, the first word is a translation of the verb couler. Well, the second is a translation of the French noun flux, which I'm not pronouncing correctly. Again, I'm so sorry, Asha. Um, this is the same noun that Deleuze and Guattari's translators render as flow. See, Bergson, 1998. The French flux covers a range of meanings fairly close to that of the English noun flow particularly in that it refers both to the movement within a body of fluid, such as currents and eddies within an ocean, and to the unidirectional movement of the fluid as a whole, such as a flow of melted wax. In other words, the same two senses that Hanners distinguishes for the keyword flow, flux, was central to Bergson's vocabulary, often denoting the vital principle that underlies his particular kind of dynamism. And that's the difference to me. If it's flow, it is only the unidirectional thing. We're only discussing one direction, which makes no sense for me for Deleuze. Nothing feels unidirectional. But if it's a flux, if it is within the flows, there is movement. And within the within all of it, there is a shift, as there is inside of a flux. Uh, the nature of flux is a physical thing. It's It shifts its nature. It hardens in sections. It softens. It collects. It does things. This, this push is a big deal. I've got new readers now. In social sciences, particularly in the work of, fuck, Castells and Abdurai, apologies, this dualism has made possible a rhetorical dichotomy that locates the agency and dynamism in global systems, all at a larger scales, while treating small scales such as the level of human experience as passive and reactive. These writers imply that we must choose between two models of the world in a globalized era. The old model is static, and it borders divide populations and cultures. 
things are self-identical and continuous in time. The new one is a fluid model in which places and even people are being replaced by flows and in which stasis is illusion or reaction or both. For anthropologists, this is, of course, not much of a choice, given the universally critiqued a historicism of structural functionalism, the rigidities of Boisian culture holism, no anthropologist presented with this choice could choose anything but a fluid model, with all of its what it implies. Part of the power of the Deleuzian language of flows, in quotes, is that it contains within itself, in its implicit opposition to stasis, a critical representation of any opposing theory. This is going to be reading. I'm going to have to read all of this. This is wonderfully, wonderfully written. Jesus. So in short, the answer is, as far as this guy's saying, and I've got a bunch more to read, is that if flux is Bergson and the use of flow as we talk about it today is a co-opted bastardized version of flux in the translations due to how the translations work. But they're the same, effectively the same thing. That's how I'm, that's what it seems like so far. Well, that's what he's getting at is the first part of his argument is basically you've got it. And it does make sense to me because you wouldn't say something fluxes, right? Because it doesn't really work well as a verb. You'd say it fluctuates. Um, but it sounds like he's trying to suggest that the verb flow is taken too far to replace the noun flux. So I would think of flux still flows, right? Which is probably how he's going to do this whole thing. It sounds like it's going to be a point about the, the conflation of the two. Oh, this is, this is fascinating. Said, this is fascinating. I'm so glad I found this. Yeah, I guess the point you and I were getting at too, though, is that every flow has its fluctuation, right? I think that's that's the thing that feels like gets lost in my previous reading, that if I go back through and I start in my head reassessing flows and instead putting in a, a lighter conception of flux as a thing, that's that's something that starts to feel intuitively so much stronger. With flows as an element, it's almost a representation of movement, not actual movement, if that makes sense. Uh, a flow is pure movement, almost. The, the, literally, I mean, not almost. It's a, if I have a f if water is flowing, uh, I visualize it and I represent it in terms of gallons per hour. That's literally how we measure flow. That's a hyper idealized version of of anything. Like it just feels like that's a setup. Whereas, like flux. It, magnetic flux for example is something that is completely fucking wild in terms of like what it can do and how it changes and again flux as a thing starts becoming a lot more interesting it's it it becomes more calculus than algebra i mean yeah like i said where i stand on this i don't want anybody to think that just because a hunter is in relation to a codified flow or flux, however we want to call it, that it's necessarily predetermined, right? Like, it's not that kind of Protestant um, perspective. It's more that with with the hunter and its affiliation and with the alliant capacities in the assemblage, the hunter is capable of all these different things 
that will ultimately be what produces it and you know instantiates it if you like so i guess that would be my only my big thing there is as long as we're if we're clear about like the implications here that flow is itself not however we're gonna leave the, the translation but within the translation that flow itself doesn't necessarily mean shall we say like standardized and there is all this room for different things to be happening um, in terms of production and that would be important too because that would have the implication for the section that as far as flux goes right i mean i understand why they're doing this translation it sounds like they're going from codification over codification into decodification so like you know, with de with the decodifying, something's kind of being let loose. So I could see why they would want to use futs there for that to try and make the point that um, you're going from from codification to over codification, just kind of letting loose. Hey Lou. Hey Lou, Lou Bergson guy. Fuck God, were you reading my brain? Did you hear me describing Bergson and just went, well, fuck, I have to get into this chat. Is that what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, Bergson's use of the term flux versus flow. Do you have thoughts on how we have basically started to switch them or how Bergson intended them or maybe how Deleuze did as a consideration? Not sure Bergson uses either of those directly. Flux, he uses a bunch. I just did a control F through a series of, I mean, Which books did you did you look at? I'm not uh, not maybe time and free will. Uh, he uses flow. I'm sorry, Bergson uses flow, and it was translated in English often to flux. In which book? Where does he use that? Um. Uh, one moment. Whatever he wrote in 1944. Do you know what that is, by chance? That's after his death. Well, nice. He died in 41. Uh, creative evolution. Yeah, creative evolution. Yeah. So I have to look for where this actually comes up, because... No, that's what we're doing. So uh, I'll give you a little background while you do that, so you can just hear me ramble for a second. Uh, as we were going through this section, uh, I came to them using flow and flux, what felt like interchangeably, and it confused me, and it felt frustrating because uh, they, they didn't have the exact same meaning. So I went back to the original text in French, and they don't use flow at all. Deleuze writes flux constantly, constantly. And apparently this is uh, from some sort of play uh, to the French noun um, that Bergson used, uh, but was translated as flux in the English elements. And Deleuze liked this shift from just flow because flux has a few extra bits of it um, because flux refers to the, the movement within the liquid as well as the directionality of the flow versus just flow, which is directionality and power. Flux is that plus the movement inside of the liquid. So we're trying to trace back 
because it, these are different things and I'm, I get weird about this shit and I can't help myself. So, um, there, that's where we are. So it doesn't come up in, in the terms that the German translator noted as difficult to translate terms. Nice. Do you know the French word that's in question? Uh, it's either flux or coule, C-O-U-L-E-R. Okay, so I have flux du temps, which is just the flow of time. Le flux du réel, which is the flow of Wait, wait, the, the what? Reality. What's the literal French? If you could copy and paste it, that'd be awesome. Yeah, flux. Flux. And that's not just flow, but that's translated to flow in the English, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm, I'm... So that's, okay. that's flux. And so is that, is that original Bergson pen to paper yeah. you wrote flux? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I just, um, Control F through the French text of um, of creative evolution. Okay, that's that's an interesting part. Here we can actually look and compare. Let me get the English. Bergson is in general not as flowy as Deleuze is. Okay, so the English translation that's on on um, Project Gutenberg uses flux as well of, in, in Creative Evolution. And in the same play, places... Oh, actually... Okay, let's actually get well not always i I guess um like it will it will often be translated as flow because like it just doesn't make sense in English to talk about flux, like the flux of time yes it That's... does no, it's the flow of time like. Every time. Yes. So I'm not yeah. understanding why that wouldn't work. Because I don't think like like if you're asking me if, if flow is like this thing that's usually used as a technical term by Bergson, I would say no. Is flux Oh actually the Actually, the, the English translation uses the flux of time as the reality itself, yeah. It's okay. actually one of only two times they use flux. Otherwise, the English translation uses flow for every other version of flux. Which is... No. No. We are talking about creative evolution now. 
Uh, I have it open. Yes, we are talking about creative evolution. And flow, flow is forty times. Um, oh fuck. Okay, one second. Uh, it is one second. It's it. There shouldn't be that many. A modern library of the world's best books, Creative Evolution, uh, translated Arthur Mitchell. Arthur Mitchell. Yeah, that's the one where where William James helped with the translation. So flux, and I think actually flux is a handful of times, not as many as flow. Yep, it's. Okay, but we have the flux of time and we have the flux of the real. Those are the two big, big ones that I found in the French text as well. Yes. So, but again, so that I think is worth is interesting, worth discussing. Here's the difference: in Antiadipus, in the uh, French version, flux is the word that they use uh, as a time, like as a, as a thing, seven hundred and five times. Coulet, which is flowing, uh, like water flows out of a cup, or I'm pouring water out the flow of the water out of the cup, is used 31 times. It's almost directly reversed in the English one, that flow is used 40 times, and flux is uh, flow is used 690 sometimes, and flow uh, flux is used 40 times. It's like swapped, and that feels weird. That's why I, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I don't even know if there's a point to this. <sighs> Whatever. Okay. So, so the French text of Creative Evolution has flux a bunch of more, more uh, But, like, my French is not on the level that I could tell you whether the, that would be, like, an important translational bit. And I need to cross-reference the passages now to look what the actual translation looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. You don't have to spend time. I'm doing this because I find it fascinating. Again, the flux versus flow is a very different thing, and I find it fascinating. So, like, for example, um, if I'm measuring heat uh, transfer, uh, I, I do a lot of computer builds, or I used to. You don't measure the flow of heat. Like, that's not really a thing. You call it heat flux. Heat flux is the rate of heat flow. Like, these are, it's a very specific terminology that's about transfer, that is about exchange, that is about uh, between points, whereas flow isn't. Okay, so like I'm only st second language English speaker, but I don't think I would have ever used flux as my first choice in any in any context. Well, yeah, it's because it's a weird word people don't use very often. Doesn't mean it's not the right word. I'm trying to remember a little in class. So the teacher was uh, giving a, an example about uh, ideas, and he said, uh, ideas come in fluxes. Uh, I think that's what he said. And he, he meant to say that uh, they're not a continuous flow. They're interrupted. That's... So, that's any sense? Yes. I mean, that that to me makes it 
if we're talking about flow, flows are about breaks and interruptions. They say like this entire section is about that. But if we just go back to the first and second chapters, like there's the flows that are about breaks and the break flows. Oh, for fuck's sake, is break flux what they fucking say? Oh, God, I really. What would. Oh, God, I wish I I so wish I fucking read French so much. I mean, like I, I just read a text about uh, uh, flux and it's always almost placed next to the word uh, decode. Decoding. Uh, but uh, as I remember, uh, it uh, it was placed next to continuity and discontinuity. So there's uh, decoding and continuity, uh, probably related to the to flux. Decoded flux is not the same as decoded flows, like not how I would use the words as an English speaker. If I were writing poetry about these things, those are two different choices. They're not like swappable. You may disagree with me that like what they mean, but they're certainly not like, oh, yeah, no, it doesn't matter. That's cool. Doesn't change anything. <laughs> it really, really does. Breaks, flows. Where is breaks, flows? I want to find that in the fucking. There it is. Breaks, flows are in. Early, please say it's early. Two forty-one. Fuck. Never gonna find this shit. Let's see if I can find go earlier. Eighty-one, thirty-seven. All right, that's good. Excellent. Okay, that is right next to Connecticut, which is definitely uh, still English. All right. It breaks flux. Uh, actually, the original translation is. Coupres uh, flux. I'm not going to pronounce this right. Apologies, but it's breaks flux. The cuts of the flow. The breaks flux, but not breaks flows. Well, maybe it makes sense if he means uh, breaking the code of the flux. Oh, actually, yeah, I, I just need to reread Creative Evolution. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Okay, it's odd that this would be like where, where, um, where, where, uh, Deleuze. Like Deleuze doesn't talk about flows or flux in when he talks about Bergson at all, so that's throwing me off. But yeah, in Creative Evolution there is some talk about flows, and specifically here here is a bit about flows in relationship to individuation. I want to read a paragraph to you, Lou, from a, I posted a little earlier, flow.pdf is about the history of the word flow through Deleuze and Bergson and other writers and anthropology. Really interesting read. I highly suggest it. But Bergson's views on movement are helpful to understanding how people use the term flow today, particularly when they employ it as a noun. In English translations of Bergson, flow appears mainly as a verb. But even more often, we see the noun flux. 
The word, the first word is a translation of the verb couler, while the second is a translation of the French noun flux. This is the same noun that Deleuze and Guattari's translators render as flow. The French flux covers a range of meanings fairly close to that of the English noun flow, particularly in that it refers to both movement within a body of fluid, such as currents. This is wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. The dude who's writing this is wrong. Absolutely, it does not deal with eddies in the ocean. The flow of the ocean is not a sentence a fucking English user would say. What the fuck? In two sentences, see, that's wrong. That's not how flow is used in English at all. I don't talk about the waves flow in, maybe, but that's a unidirectional thing that's very particular, almost representational like an idealized. Flow is flow. It's liminar flow is an example of a flow, but uh, we don't say a river's flowing if it's whitewater. Like, there's a difference. There's a very specific difference, and the idealized version of flow is flow. Flux is the non-idealized actual behavior of the material. Drew, uh, the translator have gone from material flow, like lava, and flux as a verb, flipping the translation. Oh. I, maybe. I mean, that actually, I mean, I want to say that makes sense in the sense of that might be a thing they did. Um, I would not say that's good translating. <laughs> this is, I think, which is kind of your point as well, I hope, I think. Um, like flipping the translation, that breaks the thing. I'm going to spend too much time on this. This is my new thing. I'm going to write about fucking flux. Let's do this. Found uh, the shittiest superhero ever, the flux. It's like a... Hulk ripoff? That's a real thing. That's the flux. <laughs> I've been told the task of a translator is to communicate without death in language. I've seen it happen so many times. It's a great, it's a good line. I like that. Dr. Bruce Banner from the. Say again. That's the Bruce Banner from the new What If they just oh. came out with. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know. It looks like it. Some cracked out. It is. Uh, it is cracked out, Bruce Banner. I'll give it that. Okay, so so the 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 flux thing brought me. Actually, I, I'm not sure why I control F didn't find this instance of flux in the English translation, but this one is interesting in Creative Evolution. Um, I I have to look where it starts because it it it's great in relationship. Uh, <laughs> relationship to anti Oedipus. I I just post the juicy bit. Because it's it's literally like the thing, but at the same time, like you can do this with any any number of quotes and quotes into the stuff. Things are constituted by the instantaneous cut which the understanding practices at a given moment on a flux of this kind. 
and what is mysterious when we compare the cuts together becomes clear when we relate them to the flux. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's, that's Deleuze. That's brilliant. Uh, God, every time I see Bergson, I'm just like, I need to read so much more. Yeah, it, it always falls apart if you read, like, the whole thing and not just, like, tidbits. But, yeah. That's a great sentence. But, it, again, the, if I were to replace it with flow in English, it changes the mentality of what we're talking about. Flux is a variable, randomized flow, but it is a flow. There is a rate to it, but it, it comes with the interior interior material reality of it um if if i'm discussing the the flux of heat uh or the flow of heat the flow of heat is the abstracted element the flux is actually talking about the literal rate and the, the molecules and what's happening to them and that that's a difference that i think is important here and again i'm oh my god it's fucking three o'clock this is not as much time as i should be spending on this um let me see, do I have to run? I think I have to run, actually. I'm trying to check what the German translation uses there. I've, I've got to run. It has been fun. This is great. Um, uh, let's keep help if you want. I'm going to be digging into this shit for a long time. I'm jazzed about this. This is interesting.